tangent, to break off suddenly from a line or train of thought and pursue another course. Webster's. Welcome to episode 16 of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. This is a show looking at several series of books published by DC Comics under the Tangent Universe brand, wherein creators were challenged to create an entire new universe using only the names of existing DC Comics characters. My name is Michael Bradley, and I'm one of your hosts, and with me is a man who Needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway because it would be rude not to introduce your co-host, Sean Engel. Well, it wouldn't be the first time that someone has decided not to introduce me, so thank you, Michael. <laughs> it's great to get back with you again. So we are back in uh, – we're in the back half of the second wave of books, and for the past few episodes, we've been revisiting some concepts that were introduced in the first. And this episode is no different as we are going to be revisiting the Sea Devils. Um, oh, okay, I'm, I'm kidding. Oh, thank God. <laughs> kind of. I mean, this, this, the Sea Devils do play a part, but the majority of the focus of this issue is a concept that we both had a lot of love for the first time around, the Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. But instead of the Green Lantern leading us into a trio of tales with other characters, this time we get a trio of possible origins for the Emerald Enigma, which was an interesting way to go. Yeah, I think I think it's nice that they kept the anthology feel of the first series of Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stories were a bit more truncated simply because the page count wasn't as, as great. So you didn't get as expansive with tales as you did in the first run. But they're all interesting tales. And the idea of the Green Lantern quote-unquote telling you her origin or giving you some ideas of what her origin is is, is kind of a nice concept. I, I you know, Not to bury the lead bit, but this was... This was at least as enjoyable as the first episode or the first issue of Green Lantern, so I'm looking forward to getting into this. Mm -hmm. And as an added bonus, for the first time since, I think, episode 12 or 13, neither one of us are sick. Yes. (laughs) Finally, finally, we're both over our colds. We both don't have scratchy voices. You know, I think we're both both fit and ready to, to cover this issue today, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. But first, we have a little bit of feedback to get into. Uh, the first is about a month old at this point, so apologies for, for letting it linger so long, but we, we like oh, to kind of oh, spread out the feedback. So, Do you have to let it linger? Do you have to? Do you have to let it linger? Uh, I'm sorry. Do you have to? Do you have to? 
I just can't believe it was you that made that joke. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, podcast. we're going to segue back into the email. Truncate with- silence. <laughs> With an email from Gene Hendricks, and the subject line is Vampire Joseph Stalin. And Gene writes, Sean and Michael, holy Silver Age villain, Batman. Actually, Vampire Stalin does make sense, considering the world and Stalin's personality, but it is kind of zany. It seems to me, like the Superman issue, that this is a storyline that really needs more room to breathe. Maybe even over a few issues, but that's the shame of this event. Like Sean said, some things need more real estate, and others are too long as it is. I do like how we get to see a progression in characters in this issue, and how there's some behind-the-scenes manipulation going on. I am grateful that Gravedigger isn't like Hal Jordan with Heresia. That's creepy enough to been done only once, and never seen again. Gene. Uh, yeah. There, there's no reason that we should have more Hal Jordan-esque escapades with a no. younger woman. So, no. yeah, that's that's good. I'm glad you liked the, the Vampire Joseph Stalin thing. I agree. That was one of those things that was just completely unexpected <laughs> and completely out there, but also completely worked. Yes. It was, it was, it was a brilliant turn, and yeah, I, I loved the idea that Stalin – from the grave as a vampire is running the Soviet Empire in the Tangent Universe. That's just that's just uh, amazing. It's very comics. Mm-hmm. And there and there's nothing wrong with you know with comics. This this is one of the things about the Tangent Universe show or the Tangent Universe comics. They've been able to capture a lot of that sort of Silver Agey feel, and especially in this book, you know they they've done a great job with it. And uh, I was just really impressed with it. Mm-hmm. Me too. Uh, the next uh, comment we have is an is a website comment that we got over at GreekCrypton.com, and this one's a little goes back a little ways. This is for Parallel Lines episode eight, and this was written by uh, Matthew T. Cody, and he says, "I've been blessed by God. My life is pretty great. I've enjoyed reading the Tangent books, eating my Twix, drinking my Mellow Yellow, and listening to Parallel Lines featuring two of my favorite podcasters." Well, that sounds like a that sounds like a fun time and some delicious snacks there. That's always good. I really like the music you put into the synopsis. That's all, Michael. And hearing your thoughts and insights about the issues. I vote that you guys do cover Superman's reign as well as any other Tangent appearance we've gotten or will get in the future, like Tangent makes an appearance in Multiversity or Convergence. I don't know if we've talked about covering Tangent and Multiversity. I know, I think Ben are they, Avery. Are they in Multiversity? I think Ben Avery is doing a series of blog posts um, where he's covering the multiversity events. I've seen him on Facebook post something about that. So um, I don't know if we'll be doing that, but we might be talking about convergence depending upon what we do after uh, Superman's reign. Mm-hmm. But yeah, going back to the comment, he says, as I write this, I've listened to the first eight episodes and plan on catching up and subscribing. I know I don't want this great show to end. Thank you for all the entertainment and laughs on this well-produced show, Matthew T. Cody. Well, thank you, Matthew. The The production values are all Michael. I have to say that. I've been enjoying the heck out of the show as well. I get to listen to it. Uh, you know, I know I record the show with Michael, and I know what's going to come up in conversation. But when I hear the little musical cues and and other things it's just it's just amazing so uh, he's he's right on the uh the production value for this show is some of the best out there now, thank you very much for saying so oh it's it's that's the honest truth but thank you matthew for writing into the show or writing into the uh website we really appreciate that 
And next up is an email from uh, January 11th, and this one has a subject line, In the Tangent Universe, I Only Know the Podcasters. little play on our tagline. Uh, I see what she did there. <laughs> and this, I should probably say, this is from Emily Middleton, who is uh, co-host over on the Relatively Geeky Network of Shows. And she writes, Hey, Sean and Michael. Wanted to write in and let you know how much I am loving your show. Unlike some of your other listeners, I had never heard of the Tangent Line before you mentioned it. I think it's a brilliant concept, and now that I've met some of some of them through your show, I can't wait for the Tangent characters to return this summer. I was already planning on buying almost every Convergence comic, but the Tangent books have shot to the top of my prospective reading list. Co-titling with Elongated Man definitely helps. I'm just going to interject real quick. We talked about this a few episodes ago, but there is uh, one of the Convergence books. can't remember the title of it. Maybe Justice League Detroit? I think, I think it's Justice League, but I don't think it's okay. specifically Justice League Detroit. But it okay. is the Detroit League. It's Elongated Man and Vibe and Vixen. I think Steel's in there. Right. So it's, it's the Detroit League, and they say they go up against a, a tangent villain or a tangent universe characters. Okay. So we don't know specifically who from the Tangent Universe it is. I don't think they've released anything about that. But we know it's essentially the Detroit League taking on someone from the Tangent Universe. Okay. Uh, But to get back into the email, she writes, Also, I need a copy of The Joker. Desperately. From your description, that sounded like everything I would want from an ongoing title. A plot that takes itself seriously, but doesn't mind being goofy or over the top. A consistent world with interesting characters, and above all else, a sense of fun. Some of the other books, Adam and Metal Men especially, sounded really well written and gripping, but perfectly fitted as one-shots slash universe sparks, rather than something I would be interested in for an ongoing story. Too many political machinations, and too few one-lines delivered with a, quote, boxing glove billy club, quote, unquote. (laughs) Doesn't quite roll off the tongue like boxing glove arrow. I'm loving the show so far and can't wait to find out where the Tangent Universe is heading. FYI, some of us know what the bleep and angle is because some of us sprechen Deutsch, though somewhat poorly. Probably as poorly as I just pronounced that, but <laughs> there you go. Keep up the good works, gents. Emily. Well, cool, Emily. I, I would recommend, uh, you know, I know Emily probably goes with her father to the quarter bins diving in there. I'm not saying the tangent books would probably be found in the quarter bin, but if you can, you know, I don't think they're too difficult to find. I found them relatively easy online. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I got mine through eBay, and they're definitely worth picking up, uh, yeah. especially the Joker books. I don't think we've had anything negative to say about the two versions of the Joker books. And as the time of this podcast, you know, you know, we've covered the second Joker story in the Joker's Wild, and those were some of, you know, I keep saying those were some of the highlights of the Tangent Line. There's been so many highlights in the Tangent Line. I, I really can't say that we've really had a specific negative one that we've been down on. No, I, I mean, there have been some weaker points, but I, I don't think there's been a bad issue so far. Yeah, even even, and uh, we will probably come back to the Sea Devils, that being perhaps the weakest issue. But even that one was a good issue; it just didn't live up to the to the rest of the line. Right. So, so yeah, definitely go see if you can hunt those down. They're well worth the read. And I I specifically love the Joker, the first Joker issue. The Matt Haley artwork was just superlative. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't necessarily a plug because we don't get any kind of kickback from them, but. Uh, when we were starting the show and Sean was trying to hunt them down, I looked up 
most of the issues on mycomicshop.com, and I think they, ha- if I remember right, they had most of them in stock then for you know relatively decent prices. Yeah, I think no pun intended there with the relatively. Yeah, I think I think I checked out. Uh, I'm pretty certain I got most of the Superman's Reign book from. Uh, mycomicshop.com and again we're not plugging for them this is just where we did you could probably go to mile high or look on ebay as well but they were they were reasonably priced i would Mm -hmm. say even and my my copies are in really good condition so i would say for they probably didn't even run like a buck 50 or more an issue if they ran close to two dollars i would be surprised but they're well worth it definitely worth checking out but thank you for the email emily i'm excited that we keep getting emails from people that had never read the books, but are listening to our show and us yak about them, and now they want to go read them. That's that's really cool to hear. Mm-hmm. Especially for the, you know, this is this is sort of the niche of a niche show that we are getting yeah. here. Unlike Superman and Batman, which are dealing with two of the mainstream DC characters, and and my show, just one of the guys, which deals with Green Lantern. This is a really niche show, and to know that we're getting this amount of feedback and it being this positive for something that was only had what eighteen original issues and was spaced out over two years in the late nineties, you know, is really satisfying to to find out. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we want to read the? We've got one more piece of uh, website comment, and then we'll uh, then we'll go from let's, there. Let's do the Ben Avery email. Okay, let's do the Ben Avery. Okay, let me pull that up. Is that yes? We've got one from Ben Avery, and this one is on the Wonder Woman podcast that we did. Uh, ben Avery writes in, "Hey guys, it's Ben Avery from dis- different places around the web, but perhaps most relevantly, the Ultraverse Network Nightman podcast and the Comic Book Time Machine podcast." I kept meaning to write in and keep forgetting, and then another episode comes out, and I mean to write in again and forget. Well, that's okay, Ben. Don't don't feel bad about yourself. I do the same thing. I, I listen yeah. to so many podcasts, and I want to write in, and I was like, oh, I've got to talk about this, and then time just gets away from me. So, And I've, well, I'm as equally bad at writing into podcasts that I listen to. I've been trying to catch up on the comic book, comic book Time Machine, and I have yet to send a single email, so... Sorry, I've been, ben. and I've been listening to the uh, Nightman podcast as well, and mm-hmm. you know the Ultraverse, the Ultraverse stuff is again completely out of my wheelhouse. But I enjoy the people doing the podcast over there, so uh, uh, it's more, it's well worth listening to. Anyway, getting back to Ben's email, he says, "Anyway, I've been listening to the podcast, and I have to say the Wonder Woman issue seems very interesting, maybe in a good way, maybe in a bad." But I did laugh out loud as I was driving because you started the topic and said it was Wonder Woman and my mind wandered and I thought, if I were to do a tangent character just based on the name, maybe it'd be a woman who wonders. And then it was. And I think that's where it started for Peter David. Hey, Peter, how would you approach a new Wonder Woman? Uh, A woman who wonders? I don't know if that's how Peter David speaks, but that's how I'm going to do him. (laughs) Can you do a story about that? Uh, Give me a day or two. And then a title and character is born. I respect Peter David, and I've enjoyed some of his writing. I've not read a lot, but I think this book is indeed just the result of a not-too-funny joke, which seems to have birthed more not-too-funny jokes. Speaking of jokes, the joke he opened the book with, I think that was the one where about Descartes walks into a bar, Uh and then they ask, you know, would you like something to drink? And I says, I think not. And he disappears. Yeah, that's 
<laughs> I ruined that joke anyway. My friends and I in high school thought that joke was really funny. I still do. It's been around, and considering what Peter David was trying to do thematically, it's a pretty good lead. But the book itself is a joke. Knowing the punchline, it doesn't sound like it holds up in the retelling. I love the work you guys are putting in. Thanks so much for podcasting and giving my commute some needed entertainment and diversion. Ben. Well, Ben, thanks for writing in. Yeah, I agree. The Wonder Woman story, it did feel a lot like Peter David just joking around with a character. It didn't... I don't know. It didn't really establish much of the character. It was just seemed like a big... It just uh, allowed Peter David to pop off goofy references mm-hmm. to p- philosophy and stuff. Uh, I'm not saying it was a bad issue, but I think it really didn't do much to establish the character than otherwise, more so than to just allow Peter David an outlet to be kind of jokey. Yeah. And the the uh, invisible plane jab at the end was not really necessary. <laughs> Yeah, we all understand the invisible plane and the the physics and idea around it just sounds kind of silly. But for him to hang a lantern on it, quote unquote, um, is just it just sort of smacks of him not being all that interested in it. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if that was the case. But, yeah, it could be. I mean, sometimes you you know I, I know in my job I sometimes get assignments that. I really don't care about, but I have to do them because it's it's the job. But mm-hmm. you would think a freelance writer would be able to kind of pick and choose what he writes a little more. But I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're still we're still hoping that we may find out about that. Uh, things are in the works with a, a certain interview. We're still keeping our fingers crossed on that. But you know, at the time, it's it's not looking negative. But you know, we're hoping we, we're in talks with someone, so we'll just keep in that. <laughs> But Ben Ben writes for the comic book or he podcasts for the uh, podcast Comic Book Time Machine, and he also, like you said, is on the Nightman podcast over at the Ultraverse Network. Go check those shows out. So, wh- what do you think is more niche, the Ultraverse or Tangent? Geez, the Ultraverse actually had a line with like oh, over a half a dozen comics. Mm-hmm. Prime came out of that. Mm. Yo, know, you've got you had some big like. Like Tangent does, you had some big creators. I know Gerard Jones was on there. Paul Pelletier did some art. You know, the, there's some good stuff over there. And the fact that I think I would think the Ultraverse line might be a little more at this point in time niche, simply because it really hasn't had any comeback. Now that the Tangent universe is coming back in convergence, right? I think that the tangent universe is a little less niche, but the you know it's it's pretty much two sides of the same coin. Uh, the, not saying that they're comparable, but they're both very niche podcasts, and that's why I like about podcasting is you can have these obscure little shows, the obscure little comics, and you have people who are interested in them, and they're bringing forefront to uh, people to listen to, and that people are actually getting engaged and listen to them. So. And you, you say that Ultraverse hasn't had a comeback. Ben, actually, on a recent episode, recent as we as when we record this, mentioned apparently one of the Ultraverse characters did make like a really tiny cameo with like half of his head in the corner of a panel in a recent Spider-Man comic. So yeah, I, I know that the Spider-Man's going through the Spider-Verse mm-hmm. thing. So I, I heard about that. So you, you, that's that's great. And I'm glad that they're at least getting recognized because I know the whole Malibu line sort of got shunted off once yeah. they, 
and never really touched again once Marvel bought them out. But um, they're not getting sort of the major role. I mean, you look at this list, it's Doom Patrol is in a Marv Wolfman penned uh, Teen Titans book that's coming out through the Convergence line. So mm-hmm. that's that's a lot bigger. <laughs> you know, I, I, and, and I'm yeah, not trying yeah. to... I'm not trying to to pit you know the Ultraverse versus the Tangent Universe at each other, but I smell it's on unfo- crossover. Oh well, there we go. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to get with the Ultraverse <laughs> Podcasting Network and see what we can work out. But uh, yeah, it's unfortunate that these little lines that uh, engaged people so much in the in the '90s had been kind of forgotten, and now that you know their podcast and their characters who are bringing to the forefront this idea, it'd be nice to see those characters in comics come back. And we're seeing it over in DC with Tangent. Perhaps we'll see more over in uh, Marvel with the Malibu characters. Yep, Hopefully. fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, did we want to plug Emily's shows, or did we cover that? Uh, uh, well, let's go ahead and plug her shows. I okay. don't know if we did as well. We, we can always do it. Extra as well. Go okay. ahead. Well, Emily is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts over at relativelygeeky.com. I think it's relativelygeeky.blogspot.com. Oh, yes, you're correct. Re- yeah, relativelygeeky.blogspot.com. And they've got three shows. They've got Emily's solo show, which is Uncovering the Bronze Age, where she talks about uh, different aspects of the Bronze Age. And she recently did a really great episode talking about. Um, kind of it was part uh drama part history lesson part podcast uh, talking about the comics code and i I really enjoyed that episode Mm -hmm. and then she is also co-host on the short box showcase which she co-hosts with her her father the illustrious professor allen where they talk about all kinds of comic book stuff so be sure to check those out yeah, everything over at the Relatively Geek podcast is eminently listenable to. Mm-hmm. You, you, you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not listening to those shows. Yep. Uh, but right now we're going to take a break, play a couple promos for some other shows you should listen to that probably aren't hosted by Emily or Gene Hendricks or Ben Avery. Mm-hmm. And then we'll be back to talk about Tales of the Green Lantern. All right. <laughs> Holy nightmare. So we all know who Robin is, right? Short pants, bad holy insert object gear jokes, kind of weird relationship with an older man who dresses like a bat. I know, right? So not what Batman needs. Thing is, if that's your impression of Robin, then you don't know Robin. I'm Tom Panneries, and for most of my comic collecting career, I've been a Teen Titans fan. Moreover, I've been a huge fan of Robin and Nightwing, so I've decided to take a look at those who have worn the costume in a podcast miniseries called Taking Flight. Taking Flight focuses on the life and career of Dick Grayson as he evolved from Boy Wonder to Nightwing. I'll take a look at his origin story, his time with the Teen Titans, and his evolution into Nightwing. Along the way, I'll also look at Jason Todd and Tim Drake, stopping right after Zero Hour when Dick left the Titans behind. Episodes will come out just about every week at takingflight.podomatic.com, and you can find show notes at popcultureaffidavit.com. Join me as I take a look at Comic Dumb's most famous sidekick, who is a vital part of Batman's mythos. Teenage Anarchist! Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. 
Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at two true freaks. Libson.com. Breaking in, shaping up, the checking out on the prison bus. Okay, we are back. And uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into the latest issue we have in the tangent line. This one is Tales of the Green Lantern number one. Now, like the first issue of Green Lantern over that we did back a while, this is a series of anthology stories. So rather than read it all as one whole, we're going to divvy it up into different stories and uh, go from there. The entire book was cover dated September 1999 and released on July 29th, 1999. Not 1999, 1998, and released on July 29, 1998, like all the rest of the books. Cover price was $1.95 U.S. and $2.75 Canada. The cover art was by J.H. Williams and Mick Gray, and Tales of the Green Lantern framing sequence was written by James Robinson with pencils by J.H. Williams and inks by Mick Gray. All art was colored and separated by Lee Lowridge. The lettering was by Comicraft. The editing was by Eddie Braganza, and Tangent was based on concepts by Dan Jurgens. Standing amid the graves of restless souls, the Green Lantern weaves a tale, or perhaps several tales, of her origin. The first story is entitled Brightest Light and is written by Dan Abnett and Annie Landing, with art by Mike Mayhew and Wade Von Graubucker. In the balmy waters of the area once known as Florida, the body of Lois Lane sinks slowly to the ocean floor. Prior to her demise, she was using her skill as an archaeologist and adventurer in the employ of one Booster Gold, billionaire playboy. But upon discovering that the ancient treasures she was sent to find were in the care of the mutated sea devils, Lane told Gold to stuff it and leave well enough alone. This didn't set well with the evil industrialists, so he had his henchman Kilowog stab her and throw her overboard, leaving her for dead. But Lois was rescued by what she perceived were underwater angels, and later that night she returned to Gold's yacht to enact justice. Powered by the lost souls of the Florida conflagration, Lois Lane mystically gained their power via a hanging green lantern, and now plans to use that power to avenge every dead soul, starting with her own. Okay, and we'll stop there, and we'll go ahead and uh, go on with notes for the story. Do we want to go ahead and cover the cover since we're uh, sure? Since we'll go ahead and that. Yeah, I, I don't know. The cover for me was okay, and not quite as good as the first Green Lantern, but you know, perfectly serviceable. Um, 
I do really like the way they use the all the the tangent books have had like this um, starburst type of pattern worked into the background of them somehow, and I really like on this one how they used it to uh, double as the rays emanating from the lantern. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a nice uh, design concept there that the 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 starburst is essentially the light emanating from the lantern there. Yeah, I'll have to agree with you. This isn't as dynamic a cover of the Green Lantern as the previous one. I think you hit it on the head. It's serviceable. I don't have any problems with J.H. Williams' art throughout the story. There's not as much of it, which I guess is kind of disappointing. But yeah, it's it's just a, it's a nice cover. Nothing really all that much to say. I do like the... Uh, uh, once again, going back to the titling, I like the uh, what Ryan Hughes did for the Tales of the Green Lantern. It's a nice, nice aesthetic design. And putting the lantern there as the sort of lantern symbol above the uh, top of the logo is nice. So I think that works. was on the first one, wasn't it? Yeah, that was on the first one, too. Okay. But anyway. Uh, but getting inside, I, I really like the art on this uh, opening page here with Green Lantern walking through the cemetery. It's it's very simple, but at the same time, it's very intricate and detailed, and, and there's a real mood and atmosphere to it. Yeah, that's definitely what I'm getting from it. There's there's a real sort of creepy, uh, not nourish, but just sort of dark, almost horror element going through there. As you see her walking through a cemetery with this ethereal glow and the sort of wispy... Uh, smoke-like trails coming off the power emanating from the lantern. It's a, it's a another good piece of art from J.H. Williams. Uh, we also get the sort of framing sequence on the side that we'll get throughout all the framing sequences of the uh, sort of lantern intertwined with the mystical dragon. Yeah. Which, which now that I'm thinking about it, the fact that the dragon is intertwining the lantern may bring up some more credence to the idea that Jay, the character that we saw in the uh, Nightwing Night Force book might have some relationship to the Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. It's not touched on in this book, you know, spoilers, but it, you know, the fact that we see that aesthetic design of this dragon that was, I associate with the character of Jade being here, just sort of makes me think that there might be a relationship between them. Yeah. There is something later in the third chapter that I think lends credence to that theory too, but we'll, we'll get into that when okay. we get back there. Uh, but speaking of art, in transitioning into the, the first chapter uh, that we just covered, you know, really nice job on the coloring on this uh, page with Lois Lane sinking down into the water. I, I love the way the, the rays of the sun are kind of shining down through the water. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it, the, the use of the sort of teals and darker blues, that gives you that feel of being underwater. Mm-hmm. And to the way her face is colored, the shading on that, uh, it, it gives you the feeling that well, obviously, she's sinking below the ocean. It's it's a really nice design, and uh, uh, Peter Mayhew and Wade von Graubacher do a great job with the art here in this this portion of the book. Yeah. Um, page four, my note is, if Lois Lane wasn't a world-class reporter, I could totally see her as a soldier of fortune. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I, and I don't mind her look as a soldier of fortune here. That's a, that's a very nice uh, image of her with the machete and the the uh, military camo jeans and the tied up, obviously not wearing underneath it uh, shirt she's got there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's nice. Um, plus, those? I was oh sorry, go ahead. I was going to say plus, I'm also kind of freaked out by Kilowog. 
Booster Gold's uh, bodyguard is a, a, a guy who's got four arms. Yeah. I don't get that. Is he a mutant? Is Or I guess was he... Uh, how does that... I, I don't, don't know. know. I mean, his, his face doesn't look like a normal human face. Yeah, he looks very... And he's really hairy. Mm-hmm. And wearing like a jumper of some sort. Yeah. So maybe he is a mutant? Yeah, or something like that. Maybe there is something to deal with him being from around Florida that he got a dose of radiation and this happened to him. It's not explained and it's not necessary to be explained, but it is just on. He's just Booster Gold's muscle, basically. There you go. Yeah. Uh, also, I, and I just saw, I caught this when I read it, but I just saw it again because I didn't make a note of it. Um, Booster Gold's yacht is called the Black Condor. Oh, there you go. Which is another obscure DC character. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back to Lois's look, are those Nightwing symbols on her hat? And I'm belt thinking, I'm thinking there are. I'm thinking they are because, yeah, that that belt buckle and her little pin on her beret there look very Nightwing. So again, associating Nightwing with these sort of adventurous, you know, that that Lois Lane was somehow associated that's nice. You know, uh, just a nice little seeding that they're putting in the book mm-hmm. to see that all these characters are somehow intertwined. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is something that really carries through all three of the stories we're going to look at, but especially here, I was pleased that Lois was presented as, you know, an assertive and strong female character rather than the helpless victim. I mean, yeah, she's murdered, but it's because she was actively crusading on behalf of the Sea Devils. And, you know, she wasn't the scared blonde walking down the alley at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, well, and she she wasn't murdered. It wasn't murdered like, you know, she was screaming for help or, right. you know, that he was threatening her. It, it was because Kilowog snuck up behind her and stabbed her in the back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you look at that was, panel there, clearly yeah, she, Booster is like cowering as she's... Yeah, she she is she is in control here, and she would have been she would have made Booster do what she wanted had it not been for you know his muscle coming there to take her out. Um, page six. Okay, I've got a little note on okay. page five, and we get uh, obviously here we get a little note back to the Sea Devils. You know whether that's for good or bad, but it makes sense. She's dealing with uh, characters. If she's dealing with. Uh, exploration around the Florida coast after the uh, the conflagration after the explosion the war in in uh, between Cuba or the war around Cuba and Florida so it's it's not unheard of that she'd meet these mer people and be brought basically to Atlantis mm-hmm. and again the coloring is great here yeah and it, it makes me appreciate I guess is a, is a good word the sea devils a little more that they have been referenced and used in other books, mm-hmm. it's because not such an obscure kind of out of the you know unconnected part of the universe anymore. Yeah, because that's what I think was one of the things that limited the Sea Devils book, at least for us, that it did feel that it was just on its own little on its own little part of the universe and really didn't have that much connection to the rest of it. That's right. why you know it didn't really work as well as some of the other books that were more interconnected. Uh, page six. I love the panel at the bottom. With first of all, we have Kilowog getting shot in the face, <laughs> and then we have the Green Lantern just rising up between Booster Gold and Kilowog, and it's it's it, it's. I, I swear I've seen a similar scene to this in 
one of the tales where they've told the Spectre's origin or something, but it's just a really effective panel and would have made for a dramatic splash if they would have had the room for it. Yeah, now that you mention it, that does seem that one panel does seem very Spectre, especially the look of the Green Lantern with the cloak over her and the person firing wildly at him and the bullets just passing through her because the Green Lantern essentially is ethereal or transparent. It allows things to but yeah, the that that is very evocative. There's a lot of stuff. We'll comment later in, I think, in another show, some stuff that's evocative of other artwork prior to those. Um, I don't have any other notes on this. I, I thought this was a, a nice little story. It's nice to see Lois Lane in the uh, Tangent Universe. And uh, it's nice to have the Sea Devils uh, be reconnected in some way. Yeah. Um, speaking of it as an origin for the Green Lantern, I, I guess the only problem is that from what we saw in the first book, you know, we, we were told there, or, or what we were told there, the lantern's not so much about vengeance as releasing the dead so they can ultimately find peace. Mm-hmm. And the way this is set up here, she's, you know, as she says, she says in the last panel there, rising from the depths and and helping the lost people of Atlantis or whatever. But yeah, I said I'll avenge every dead soul one yeah, by one, starting yeah, yeah, with yeah. my own. Yeah. So, but you know. As as we see, none of these origins might be true. So, mm-hmm. well, then that's the you will get to that at the end. Yeah, but uh, after another interlude where Green Lantern schools the reader on various deities of the dead, she tells of the she tells us of the next origin tale entitled "Darkest Night," written again by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, with art this time out by George Genty and Drew Gasseri. Gracey, sorry. In the war-ravaged waste of Czechoslovakia, the hero known as Manhunter and her mechanical dog Pooch tear through the hordes of undead unleashed on the villagers by the evil arch-fiend Darkseid. Turning from the fray, Manhunter finally comes upon her prey, a mystical enchantress who follows the dark magic of the Meridian Order and uses her mystical orb to raise the dead to do her bidding. Darkseid asks what drives the Manhunter to pursue her so, and retreated to a Thomas DJ-style flashback time, where Manhunter is stalking Darkseid through the high-rises of New Atlantis. Crashing through the window of her penthouse apartment, Manhunter executes Darkseid as retribution for all the lives she took during the Czechoslovakian War. But it turns out that the woman Manhunter killed was not the brutal bombshell, but a woman who looked just like her. Racked with the guilt of her error, Manhunter has spent all this time trying to find the real dark side, and now the undead hordes are about to stop her before she can complete her mission. But as she makes a last-ditch effort to evade the zombies, Manhunter is approached by the glowing green ghost of a woman she wrongly murdered. The apparition tells Manhunter that she's Darkseid's twin sister, that she moved to New Atlantis to get away from her sister's legacy, and to gain vengeance. Luckily, it wasn't against Manhunter, but Darkseid, as the twins engaged in a battle of eldritch energies, ending in the Manhunter smashing Darkseid's orb with a hanging lantern and drawing her and the orb's powers into it. Crisis averted, the dead sister takes up the lantern with the duty to shine its light where evil lies. I was so happy with this segment. 
Yeah, same here. I I enjoyed this one. This was a nice way to bring back the character of Manhunter mm-hmm. to tell an interesting origin tale to to bring in the concept of dark side even though it's not technically the apocalyptic concept of dark side but the fact that i guess there is a parallel there that this dark side also has minions who blindly follow her <laughs> and and are willing to do anything that dark side commands them you know on apocalypse it was just their love for dark side and this it's because they're zombie hordes but this was yeah this was really really great um yeah i thought the art was great and i love the way that abnett and lanning wrote the man hunter and mm -hmm. i would read a series with this creative team and this character uh i've been i need to go pick up because i'm such a fan of guardians of the galaxy supposedly the abnett and lanning uh, revamp of Guardians of Galaxy from a couple of years ago is is some of the stuff that that movie was based on. Okay. And I need to go pick up that stuff because I've heard it's really good. I'm certain it's traded somewhere, so I just need to get off my butt and go do it. Um, starting starting off, uh, I, I don't have anything on page 9. My first note's on page 10. Do you have anything nope, before that? Yeah. Okay. You know, I'm going to say I like this version of Darkseid and her magical <laughs> orbs. I mean magical orb. Orb, I mean singular, not her magical orbs, which I'm staring at right now. Oh, sorry. I was distracted. Evil always has cleavage. So yes, uh, yes, she does. Yeah, the, the, Genty does a great job with these characters. You know, they look they look dynamic and they look um, attractive. It, it's, it's some good artwork throughout all of this. Yeah. Uh, page 11, as a character building moment, I like the concept of Manhunter killing the wrong person and, and the story potential, the emotional weight that that would have on her. Mm-hmm. Um, this wasn't a story to explore that in depth, but if this was a Manhunter series, certainly uh, they could. Yeah, and I like the the final panel there where she's she's mourning over the fact that she got the wrong person. That's very, that's almost very Peter Parker Spider Man. It's it's just a simple image of the Manhunter squatting, squatting down or sort of sitting down with her legs curled up close to her mm-hmm. and her hand in her face and it's it's all just white background with her shadow and the text commentary and the shadow behind her it's really nice image telling how depressed she is that she found the wrong person yeah and killed the wrong person for that matter i also like the the schematics of pooch on the wall there in that one panel it's just a nice oh, little yeah. detail it's fun mm-hmm uh, my next note is for not till fourteen. Okay, um, I've got one on page thirteen. It's just an aesthetic design of Manhunter, and I don't know whether this is supposed to be her hair or if this is supposed to be something that's coming off the back of her mask. And, and we've seen it before, but what's with the little flail thing on the end? Is that? woven into her hair or is that supposed to be part of the mask it's weird it's we've never seen her without the mask so it's it's hard to tell what it's supposed to be but it i I could see it really either way i think it would be really awkward to have your hair like just sticking out the top of your mask and then braided back and and having a mace at the end of it Mm -hmm. but it's just it's just for me kind of a weird aesthetic mm -hmm. design that i just commented on it mm. I don't know. I kind of like it in that it, it gives you something like a little swoosh, like like a cape or something, you know, to give a little motion to the figure. But 
yeah, it is kind of weird. No. Uh, but page 14, you know, you know, the fact that Manhunter killed the twin by mistake and that the twin is okay with that was a nice twist. Yes, I'm glad that that the sister knew of her sister's evil and even though the Manhunter did kill her, she knows that the Manhunter's desire to try and get rid of her evil sister was more important than the fact that she got the wrong person. Right. So yeah, that's that's good that she's that this vengeful ghost who's been brought forth, surprisingly enough, by her sister's power to raise the dead at a certain time, isn't coming after the person who killed her, but rather the person who's actually truly evil. That that cements this character as being a possibility for being in the lantern and being a heroic character. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine, I'm jumping ahead to seventeen now. The, the very okay. end of the story. Same here. Okay. Um, this being that this was a much more kind of superhero-ish origin for the character, the dialogue at the end felt very much like a you know kind of a stating the mission line right out of, right out of a '60s comic. Mm-hmm. And I like that it also sort of plays back to the original Alan Scott Green Lantern note. At the end, she says, and I'll carry it for now, for where its light falls, evil will forever flee. Which oh, is, I, I didn't catch that. Good. Which good is call. somewhat like the uh, I shall set, shed my light over dark evil, for the dark things cannot stand the light, the light of the Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that there's a parallel that Abnett and Landing at least put in there, a sort of parallel to the original Green Lantern, which I thought was a nice touch. Good call on that. Um, yeah, but this, was, this was just a fun chapter, just spy drama and vigilante action and then you've got zombies and the supernatural element which you know we really didn't see that in the first appearance of the characters but it it fits with the universe Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah i I agree i like this one this would probably be uh, this would probably be my favorite of the three not that uh, not that the other ones are bad but uh this one just rises to the top you know for all the reasons you said, it having espionage, it having zombies, and having a, a comic book feel, this was just a really good story. Mm-hmm. But if we want to move on, the final story, entitled No Evil, was written by John Ostrander, with art by Ryan Sook and Mick Gray. In the Bone Room, the meeting place for the Dark Circle, the Enchantress Zatanna... Sorry. The Bone Room? Sorry. <laughs> Go yeah. ahead. Okay. The Enchantress Satana petitions the world's most powerful sorcerers to allow her to join their ranks. The Dark Circle is unwilling to let this upstart join the ranks, but the sorcerer Etrigan proposes a test for the young Satana. Retrieve the Green Lantern and return it to the Dark Circle. Then she may take any place that she wishes. Satana agrees and heads out on her quest to discover this mystic object. Three years later, Satana finally finds the lantern and its bearer walking through an ancient cemetery. Striking, Zatanna cast a dark spell against the Lantern Bearer, only to have her magic return against her twofold. Her body dead and her soul trapped within it, Zatanna wonders what her eternal fate will be when she's approached by the Lantern Keeper, a former pirate named Jason Blood. Blood tells her that she can accept the role of being the Green Lantern if she wishes to abide by its will, something that she reluctantly does. Okay, what are your thoughts on this one? All I'm saying is, somewhere there has got to be a brothel called the Bone Room. That's all I'm saying. 
<laughs> oh, I'm going to do an internet search that <laughs> for later. Um, I think having John Ostrander write this last tale was a good choice uh, because he's written the magical characters in the two Nightwing books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think... I think that definitely helps in when you're telling a tale of sorcery and these arcane characters, uh, uh, the members of the Dark Circle. So I, I like that they chose the right person to write this. Mm, Ryan Sook's art? Mm, it takes some getting used to. It's very vertigo or feels also kind of like Mike Mignola Hellboy type art. It's not necessarily to my taste, but again, it's not bad. Yeah, the the art in this chapter isn't something that I was really fond of, but writing-wise, you know, as an origin for the character, I think this chapter was my favorite of the three, and even though, ironically, it's the one I have the least to say about. Yeah, I've got I've got precious few notes for it as well. It's it's nice to see them try and work all these magical characters from the DC universe and the detention universe, even if they're somewhat different. Well, I guess Bane technically isn't magical, but the sorcerer members of the uh, black circle are specifically Etrigan, Madame Zal, Bane, Raza Ghoul, the creeper and Sargon. So mm-hmm. it's, it's neat that Ostrander gets to pick and choose those characters and bring them into the dark circle uh, a part of the tangent universe that he's commonly that he's been associated with, but yeah, I think yeah, the artwork does kind of yeah, yeah. minimize it. I, I did enjoy seeing more of the Dark Circle since they had been referenced in the two Nightwing books, but we hadn't actually seen anything about them. They were just talked about a little bit as far mm-hmm. as being a, a a group of power, you know. Yeah, the only person that we've really seen from the the Dark Circle would have been would have been the Creeper, and unfortunately, he's been kind of sidelined. So it's yeah. nice to see what the Dark Circle was made of. Yeah, um, I've got a few. Go ahead. Did you notice that Zatanna looks a lot like Jade? She does, kind of. Particularly with the outfit, I think. Yes, she does. In fact, she does have that. If you look at her left arm, she has a tattoo. It's not the dragon tattoo that runs down her entire leg, mm-hmm. but she does have a tattoo on her left arm while Jade herself had the tattoo on the right arm and it, it ran the entirety of her the right side of her body as well. Right. So. But I thought that lended some credence to your theory that they might be related somehow. Oh, that makes sense. That, that that's a that's a good catch there, yeah. Um I don't really have any specific notes. Well, yeah, I've got a couple. Either. I've got a couple on page twenty-two. That second panel there, where we see uh, Jason Blood revealed as the first Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, if Iggy Pop and Mick Jagger could somehow intertwine their DNA and produce an offspring, that's what this character would look like. <laughs> so, so put that in your nightmares for a while. But um, you've just guaranteed none of our listeners will sleep tonight. Yeah, well, if I saw Iggy Pop, an offspring of Iggy Pop and Mick Jagger, I wouldn't sleep either. That's <laughs> that's going to haunt my dreams. Um, the only other note I have is for the end of the book. Uh, the mausoleum 
uh, in the final framing sequence, uh, bears three names of the people that the Green Lantern might be. Uh, of course, one is Lois Lane, the other one is Zatanna, and then the third one looks like it might be Corey Anders, which mm-hmm. is the alias of Starfire. And I'm wondering if the character in the second book was supposed to be Corey Anders, who was the analog, uh, the tangent analog for Starfire. And then no, they I changed think. it, you think? I, I don't, I, I'm not really certain. Uh, they never really gave a name oh. for the character in the second story. Did they not? I don't think so. They they just they just said one of them was named Darkseid. And uh, they never really gave a name to the other one, I don't oh, think. Oh, well, then maybe it is Coriander, yeah. Hmm. And, and that would kind of work the, to the fact, uh, paralleling the, the DC Comics book, that Starfire had a sort of evil version of herself in Blackfire. You know, <laughs> yeah. Not that, you know, not that we're you know, you know, going parallel one for one, but you know, it's, if they're taking this person to be Coriander's, it's nice that they kind of relate that sort of idea of her having a negative or an evil counterpart mm-hmm. in both the DC universe and both the Tangent universe. So I thought that was an interesting choice. They kind of did that with the Flash, too, with the Dark Flash. Which, oh, yeah. So. But you know, overall, it's just another strong issue that really, I think, shows the strength of these characters and, and the universe that the that has been created with these books. You know, each of these stories was intended to tell a possible origin, but I was really happy with how they utilized the Sea Devils and the Manhunter and the Dark Circle to tie it into that larger universe as a whole. Mm-hmm. This this uh, the first Green Lantern book was a tale that that took you sort of out of the universe and gave you little snippets of what the universe was. You know, we had the the tale with uh, uh, with Captain Comet, and then the tale with uh, oh, uh, what was the member? You know, the 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 House of Mystery and all that. So oh, yeah. and then yeah. and, and then the one with uh, Arthur Curry and the uh, the, uh, the Captain Boomerang's uh, military people. So. This one does more of bringing the universe into, and it expands more upon the universe that's been developed, rather than just ta- telling little tales that don't really fit into the story. So it's uh, again, I think the anthology idea of the Green Lantern book was a nice concept, and they it would have been great if they could have done longer stories. But I think all the stories worked out really well in this, despite the minimized page count. Yeah, I think they all fit pretty well in the the pages they were given. You- but the Manhunter one especially could have been uh, fleshed out a little more, but I, it didn't need to be, I guess. Yeah. I think I think getting good writers like Abnett and Lanning and John Ostrander to do the book was a great idea, and they did really, really good jobs with these stories. Yeah. So is that all you got for – That's it for me. Mountain? All yep. right. Well, next episode we're going to be uh, looking at the – I guess second to last book in the second wave, which is Power Girl, which if you liked the Metal Men issue that we covered, and I think it was episode two, yes, then you definitely want to tune in because Power Girl, not to, not to spoil ahead, but Power Girl kind of acts as a spiritual successor to the Metal Men book. So, mm-hmm, and that's that's definitely something to look forward to. So we hope you check us out next time. Yep. Be sure to keep writing in. Uh, all the contact information is in the end tags. Uh, we really like hearing from you, and we'll, we'll be sure to read your feedback in an episode. So, But until then, talk to you later. Bye, everyone.
You've just finished listening to Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Hosted by me, Michael Bradley. And me, Sean Ingle. The show can be downloaded from a variety of places. Most notably, Michael's website, greatcrypton.com, where you can find show notes, cover images, and a section for leaving comments about the episodes. It also can be found on iTunes by searching for Parallel Lines. And if you happen to use iTunes, please take some time out to leave a review. Maybe even a five-star one. Every review helps more people find out about the show. The show is also on Facebook, where you can like us and get updates when new shows are posted. Plus, images, plot elements, and general discussion about the books can be found there as well. Want to send feedback about the episode? Send us an email at tangent at greatcrypton.com. All feedback is warmly welcomed, and we will definitely read your comments on the show. When Michael and I aren't doing shows about alternate DC Comics history, we're busy doing tons of other geeky stuff on the internet. For instance, Michael does a podcast about Superman and Batman team-ups, cleverly titled Superman and Batman. And Sean hosts a number of podcasts, including Just One of the Guys, Walking Dead Wednesday, The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, Listen to the Prophets, and Who True Freaks. And all of these shows can be found over at twotruefreaks.com. Speaking of two true freaks, if you ever feel like making a purchase from Amazon.com, please use the Amazon link at twotruefreaks.com. After clicking the link, any purchase you make at Amazon will shoot a percentage of money back to the Two True Freaks website. It won't cost you anything extra, but it really helps out a great bunch of podcasters. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next time for another episode of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Because in the Tangent Universe, you only know the names. Hello. Hello again. God damn it. <laughs>